Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast where myself and a co-host introduce each other to films, and in this way, we catch up on our cinema. Uh, So it is the month of November 2020, uh, which means it is no theme November. Uh, Essentially what that means is that there is no theme for this month. We are just picking whatever the fuck comes to mind whenever we feel like it uh, from week to week. Uh, and so joining me this week is my brother, Matt. Uh, say hello to the folks at home, Matt. How you doing? So uh, Matt was gracious enough to join me last week, and he's here again. So um, I have decided to be gracious on my part and allow him to select the movie twice in a row now. That doesn't happen very often on this show. So uh, last week, uh, Matt had the both of us do some mutual catching up on cinema in the form of uh, Damien Chazelle's Oscar-winning Whiplash or whiplash, if you're if you're down with that. Um, neither of us had seen that one, and uh, that was that was a welcome change of pace. Uh, I will say that much. So uh, good on you for picking that one, Matt. But uh, this week, uh, what do you have for us this week, Matt? <laughs> this week, uh, we're truly catching up on one of our old cinema classics, uh, Total Recall. Not the Colin Farrell remake, but the original Arnold piece. What was yeah. that 1990? <laughs> yes, 1990 on the nose. Um, I was about to cut you off and be like, <laughs> seriously, the Colin Farrell one? Like, did anyone see that? Did, how many people actually remember that that is a thing that exists? Um, because I certainly forget from time to time. Um, but funny enough, um, my typical co-host, my my recurring co-host, Kyle, uh, he has like a funny story uh, about that remake movie where somehow he knows that movie like, not not the movie in its entirety, but um, there was an exchange between him and his brother where there was mention of John Cho with like bleach blonde hair, and instantly <laughs> he was like, "Total Recall remake!" <laughs> like, like I know exactly what you're watching right now, and you know that's that's a weird thing to remember. But honestly, if you're going to remember something from that movie, that deeply unmemorable movie, um, I guess that's something. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Maybe the fact that Brian Cranston's in there before he like blew up and took over the world. Um, but yeah, uh, Total Recall from 1990, of course, directed by Paul Verhoeven, uh, the Dutch director uh, who was kind enough to give us one of my very, very, very favorite films, easily in my top five of all time, Robocop. Um, and this was like his, his next big hit in Hollywood after he had moved down here. Um, but of course, this is headlined by Arnold Schwarzenegger himself um, in between the first and the second Terminator. So this was kind of like the the last leg of the journey before T2 came out and he took over the world, essentially. Um, but this is a movie that both Matt and I know really, really well. But um, what is what is it about this movie that made you want to review it this week? Uh there's a number of different things. It'll be all over the place, but uh, you know this by now. That's that's how our conversations go when we're talking about movies. Um, obviously, the one that stands out the most in my mind is just, I think, Paul Verhoeven, is, that's the way you pronounce it. Um, a lot of his movies, I feel like, have been become more relevant than ever in the era we've been in in America at this time. And, you know, it's not a place for a political debate about things. It's just really just kind of the structure of the country right now seems to really fit the narrative of, you know, his dystopic view on the world essentially. And 
you know, it, that worked back in the eighties and now we're back to it in 2020 with, you know, a pandemic going on and everything else that's come with it. So, um, it, it's been nice going back and reviewing his stuff and kind of seeing the satire and like really getting it compared to being younger. And this is kind of the second point of it is this was like the ultimate playground movie, which I don't know if this is a thing anymore, but like there was a period of time, especially before you got to see Ray at our movies when you're on the playground where they would all get spoiled by whatever kid had an older brother or got to stay up late one night, watch it with dad where you could actually, you know, you would hear about these hyper violent, crazy action movies that really all people would describe as a few bullet points. Like, you know, total recall is one of the ultimate ones. It's like woman with three boobs, hyperviolence, probe in the brain, you know, woman's head explodes, all these type of things that just like you could visualize when you're being described to you and it stuck with you. So then when you saw the movie later, it, this one actually held up. So there's that I think is an interesting conversation and fits in with kind of our perspective on movies, which is so much rooted in nostalgia and, you know, how you feel as you watch it and the stories behind how you watch it. Um, so those were the two biggest things that jumped out. The third one was kind of, I really want to pick your brain and see like, obviously what you know about the backstory of it. But also as I watch this now as an older person, realizing how much, this is basically a comedy to me now. Like I can't take this movie seriously at all. And I think that's why it worked so well. Cause I think that this is one of the only times where they actually took Arnold and really played up his two biggest talents, which are his great comedic ti or timing for being a big, you know, lug, and then also his ability to execute, you know, action sequences and deliver catchphrases. So, yeah, uh, all fantastic points. And I mean, I don't need an excuse to revisit this movie. I've seen it many a time, and like I was telling you before we recorded it, I think it's very funny that it just so happens that the copy of this movie that I own in my vast movie collection belongs to you i like you you were moving out of mom and dad's house and you just kind of didn't care about your dvds and i was like sure i'll take total recall so of of the many many you know blu-rays and stuff i've never bothered to upgrade it because i've always had your dvd of it which i've watched many many times and uh i like i said i need no excuse um to revisit total recall because i i love I love every moment of it from front to back. Cause like you said, I, I think it's so beautiful that you, you call it a, a playground film. Cause I, I miss that. Um, I think that, I think that growing up in that atmosphere was a really wonderful experience. Like being able to go to the video store and have an entire film, like played back in your head, in your imagination, purely based on the cover art and maybe the three tiny photos they had on the back. And if, if you were literate at the time, which, you know, if you're a little kid, that's questionable. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe you get like a tagline or a paragraph of text. Um, but so many movies that I got to see, like R-rated movies in particular, that, that I think that's for young boys anyway, that, that's like the vast majority of these kinds of movies. Um, Total Recall fit into that category beautifully because I remember distinctly the, the photos on the back. I think it's... Um, Oddly enough, both of the still photos they use of Arnold on the back of the VHS anyway um, are from the same scene, I think. It's uh, when um, the robotic woman head uh, mm. comes off of him. So he's wearing the woman's dress and he's being 
sucked by the vacuum and he's doing his face <laughs> into the camera. And then the other one is him holding the, the prosthetic head from behind. And it, I, I know like, the shot. It's a weird because it's the bald head and it's yes. kind of creepy looking. And yeah. it's so weird looking because it looks like he's massaging a woman's neck. Like it, mm-hmm. you, it doesn't compute in your head when you just see that, that production photo. It looks like he's like grabbing a woman, a bald woman from behind and she's not happy about it. <laughs> I, I mean, we'll, we'll delve into it. Uh, down the way but um, I I do know that the marketing for this movie initially was really poor Mm. and he a big reason he got a lot of credit for this one because I I mean forgive me if I'm wrong but this one actually really elevated him to a true action superstar like he had already done Conan and Terminator but like this was the first one that made him like a popcorn action star like I, I guess the equivalent being Dwayne the Rock Johnson now of just somebody that like commands top dollar and pretty much can do whatever they want in terms of that genre. Um, because everyone just assumes they'll get their return on investment. So, um, and yeah, from what I understand, he was largely responsible for them changing the way they marketed this movie because it was really funky at first. Yeah. As far as I understand, he actually obtained quite a bit of creative control over the production um, because like you said, he was kind of at the precipice of, of reaching the greatness that we all know him for now. I mean, he had already done uh, commando and predator um, by the time we got to this one. Um, I think the one in between though was raw deal, which is, that is a strange Arnold film that, that, that is an example of misusing your Arnie. Um, it's a script that was penned with someone else in mind and he, he's doing like subterfuge and he's doing, he's, he's, it's like Yojimbo, <laughs> but with Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's like Arnold is not a saboteur. He's like John matrix is what you, that's why commando is such a beautiful Arnold movie. Cause it is nowhere near his best. But if you take like the, the most vague outline of what someone who's not terribly familiar with his filmography would expect from him in that era, mm-hmm. that's what the movie would be. It's just, it's just GI Joe with one guy instead of a whole team. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yeah, actually raw deal from what I understand that was that studio was the one originally attached to do total recall. And that's how he caught wind of it. Cause like yes. the big legend behind this movie is that Arnold kind of caught wind that this movie was available after it had gone through developmental hell for years and years and, you know, made a push to basically become his own thing. So um, again, th- these are all things that like I picked up just from, you know, reading articles here and there about over the years, but that's my understanding is that raw deal. He, he worked with that studio and that's how, thus became a familiar with this one. And then later, like when he worked for better studios, <laughs> was able to get a hold of this one as well. Well, Arnold's story is is one that's just fascinating for for anyone to look into, um, because th- this is a man who who strived for greatness pretty much at every step of his journey through life. Um, maybe even to this day, I'm pretty sure he's doing a pretty good job raising those mini ponies and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be savages, I tell you. Um, but he's he has that knack for knowing who to buddy up to when um mm-hmm. and his career it's it's like uh will smith in the 90s like like every move was intensely calculated you you were always keen on pointing that out to me that if you like really get into the nitty-gritty of the management of will smith's career at its height genius 
And I would argue that Arnold kind of pulled the same move Um, because like you said, it was kind of through whispers in the trade papers and stuff that he caught wind of, you know, Hmm. Blade Runner wasn't a big hit in theaters, but you know, Philip K. Dick, Hmm. This script has possibilities. Hmm. Maybe those possibilities could involve me. Hmm. Maybe if I buddy up to the right people at the right time, I can not only like headline this film, but also have a great deal of creative control over it. This is like Kevin Nash booking WCW kind of shit. This is <laughs> this is like diabolical mastermind kind of shit we're talking here. But um, yeah, as far as I understand, originally, um, I don't know if they obtained the rights. I believe they did. But um, it was Dino De Laurentiis, uh, his mm-hmm. production group, which made some massive films, but so many of them were just like shit show productions. <laughs> that, I mean, the one thing I, I always remember about Dino um is that he had this obsession with chasing jaws like he always wanted to make jaws and he kept fucking it up <laughs> like <laughs> over and over and over again but he just would not stop trying and that's probably what ran his company into the ground was you know doing 70s king kong and orca and oh hey one more king kong just because <laughs> but, <laughs> but um the studio that ended up getting and and making total recall was carol co um which is one of those one of those names that if if you're of a certain age range which you and i are um it puts a smile on your face because you can you can picture the the production logo like being drawn on the screen with the blue color and everything um because it preceded so many fantastic movies of the like 70s 80s and 90s um and then was very just abruptly stamped out um it it's right up there with like Orion or Canon mm-hmm. films where it was like this mm-hmm. moment in mm-hmm. time that damn they had some hits like Carolco gave us the Rambo films so they were producing Arnold's like competition <laughs> parallel to him <laughs> um and of course they did this one and they they worked with John Carpenter and they made the Iron Eagle films and all manner of slasher movies and stuff they they really did quite a bit of hard like heavy lifting um in that time period but um we were talking before we started recording about some of the other actors um, that were attached to this this production, Matt. Do you, do you want to inform the, the listeners who some of those folks may have been? I mean, the one that always jumps out to me is uh, Richard Dreyfuss. <laughs> I mean, that that when you compare it to what came, what, what we saw Total Recall to be, it, it seems just comical to imagine Richard Dreyfuss in the role. Makes more sense to me, like knowing that the original iterations of it were probably more rooted in the story, the Philip K. Dick version, which from what I understand, again, I haven't read the actual book, but from, I believe that like, like there's no Martians there's no, or no um, yeah, mutated folk in it. There's no, it's not as action oriented. It more focuses really just on the mind implant thing. And, and a lot of it really, I think the theme overall is just kind of fantasizing about escaping drudgery of your day-to-day life. And, and beyond that, even uh, more like childhood fantasy. And um, yeah, so in that sense, I guess Richard Dreyfuss makes sense. I mean, if you, you imagine Quaid is more of a, like, you know, I guess he was an accountant in the original. So just kind of, this guy going about his day-to-day life and just dreams of Mars constantly and needs, you know, his outlet. So that I guess makes sense, but 
But then there was a wide range of other names. Like, who else did you have on your list? Uh, Patrick Swayze um, was attached at one point. Um, and, you know, Swayze, Swayze could do it. Like, it, it wouldn't be the same movie. It would be arguably a sexier movie. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but a more graceful movie, if you will. But uh, he could do it. I mean, Swayze has screen presence. He, he, can, he can be tough. Like, you know, he did Black Dog. He did, he did Roadhouse. <laughs> he was the tough guy from The Outsiders. Like, you know, Swayze could pull it off. But um, we'll get into it in more detail. But, like, I'll probably say this three or four times on this single recording that, like, this is an example of using your Arnold correctly. Um, Agreed, hundred percent. Um, because I think it's it's interesting that you point out that uh, originally the character of Quaid um, was written as an accountant. Um, I would imagine that was lifted directly from the original text, but because Arnold Schwarzenegger got the role, they changed that <laughs> to construction worker. Because look at him, <laughs> like this, this was Arnold in 1990. We we're filming in like 1989. He he was supremely jacked. He's he's difficult to ignore um, when he walks into a room. So you put him with Robert Costanzo on the job. Like, I don't want to see Robert Costanzo doing my books. <laughs> like he was probably cast beforehand. It's like, Oh shit. Well, we better put him in a construction yard or in the backseat of a police, <laughs> police car or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, this um, movie had like three different writers. Um, two of whom worked on the original iteration of the script and another one was brought on more than likely. Um, I believe actually he was handpicked by Arnold um, as well as the director. Uh, Paul Verhoeven actually was recruited by Arnold because like I said, the man is a mad genius and he saw RoboCop and he was like, I want to be the robot cop without the robot. I already did the <laughs> robot. <laughs> I'm not doing it again. Not until next year. <laughs> but yeah, he brought he brought a very talented director who was, you know, proven to be able more than capable of handling this material, as well as an additional writer to massage things out in such a way that's like, hmm, we don't have Richard Dreyfus in this movie anymore. We have Arnold. We should probably tailor it uh, to fit the man whose name is going to be on the marquee. Yeah, no, and, and that actually leads me into why I think this movie is actually secretly a comedy because the way they implement their Arnold is just brilliant. Well, let's just get into it. So like it starts off for one of the most famous playground sequences, which is him on Mars and his helmet comes off and his face essentially explodes right before within the first five minutes. Like it's one of the things like this was playground war. Like it was like, dude, you need to see this movie His eyeballs explode band and everything his face swells up it's arnold's head that they did the special effects with so that in itself is hilarious and it's just i love they just there's no messing around it's like we're just gonna throw you into the deep end right away with the ultra violence yeah um so to clarify it for for any folks maybe younger listeners i don't know how many of how many of those we have um but what my brother is referring to when he says a playground moment is essentially something that you would tell your friends about on the playground and they not having been able to see this r-rated movie would have to kind of imagine what it what it was like the only difference is in total recall what you're saying is you're you're not exaggerating you're just stating fact <laughs> like no <laughs> like literally first 
five minutes of the movie, Arnold takes a bad trip down a, a Martian hill, breaks his fucking visor, and yeah, his face explodes. <laughs> and just listening to him wail, like... It's yeah. a, like I mean, he has a distinct wail. <laughs> and um, it needs to be said, um, one thing that was uh, really fascinating, um, I took it upon myself to take advantage of that DVD of yours that I pilfered from you. Um, I watched this film with the director and star's commentary. Uh, so it's Arnold mm-hmm. and Paul going back and forth. And uh, one thing that was very fascinating because uh, Paul Verhoeven is a wonderful interview. I don't know if you've ever seen him, but he is so animated and he's just awesome. Like he, he's a cartoon unto himself. The two of them match up very well. Yeah. Um, but one thing that was really fascinating was um, to hear how gracious he was about giving credit where credit was due. Um, when it came to the creative aspects of like a lot of the production design and a lot of mm-hmm. like the some of the more inventive gags, because this movie is packed to the brim with amazing visual effects and stunt work on top of that, um, he takes almost no credit for any of it. Like he he states the names of all the people who did all those things, who engineered all those things. And um, like you said, the the Martian aspect, like the mutants, which play mm-hmm. a huge part in the story towards the end. Um, apparently David Cronenberg came up with all that, which tracks <laughs> like, like, okay, mutant body hoarder and yeah. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, apparently he was attached to the film at some point um, and he did contribute those elements to the script, but they were remnants um, that he left behind and he wasn't credited, but for Hooven is pretty vocal about saying, yeah, I didn't come up with that. And same with uh, this ultra grisly effect that we see multiple fucking times in this movie this is nightmare feel shit if you're underage watching this movie of people um in a vacuum exploding essentially um these effects these puppetry effects of which there are many in this film were all done by rob botin who of course worked on robocop um as well as john carpenter's the thing um, yeah. So when when you see these you know mangled <laughs> mangled bodies flying around the screen, <laughs> they're they're in the most capable of hands, and apparently Paul Verhoeven just let him go nuts. <laughs> He's just like yeah, do it. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I love this movie as a comedy because just when I view it now, it's like it, it just seems like exactly what you just described, like a director that just kind of gets presented to him. He's just like. You mean I can do whatever I want? <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, what? What is this? I don't understand this. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> well, and there's another another aspect to it too, because like, we'll we'll go over the plot points, but like, one of the fascinating things about it is this is a mindfuck movie. Like, this movie ends, and you truly don't know what occurred. And I actually think that they left a lot of nuggets that could create you could actually debate this a lot if you actually when you view it a few times and you realize like all the little foreshadowing moments they have i mean this one is pretty obvious to the end we'll we'll cover that eventually but um what i'll say is just the way it's like the whole point of the movie is kind of like this is it a fantasy or is it reality and i like the fact that with casting arnold it's almost like you're viewing an additional fantasy. Like this is Paul Verhoeven to, to a T is to overthink something and make it super way more elaborate than it needs to be. And just the thought of like Arnold is such like 
this archetype of like this big alpha male figure. And it's almost like you're seeing this fantasy play out of like, not only is he a secret agent, not only is he bigger than everybody in the quarry, not only does he have, is he seven feet tall? Cause that's one of my favorite things about Arnold in these movies is him walking around a cityscape and he's just so much bigger than everybody else. And then nobody seems to react to it as if it's out of place. It's just like, you know, he just blends in. It's like, no, he's seven feet tall and 300 pounds of muscle in the, according to the movie. Like, what did you expect? Yeah, but, um, uh, sorry to cut you off, but um, I, I get what you're getting at. And I think that is maybe the secret brilliance of this movie. And Paul Verhoeven as a filmmaker, like I can't speak for his Dutch films. I've only seen one of them. And I'm very glad that I took it upon myself to watch it because it was very good. It's called Black Book. Um, mm-hmm. and it was his first movie he made back in the Netherlands after his career in Hollywood. Um, but the man has an incredible talent um, for telling stories um, and framing the subject matter in such a way that uh, they welcome many interpretations. In fact, mm-hmm. they kind of force you to come at them from multiple angles because um, they're perfectly digestible if you uh, uh, come at them with a one-track mind. Um, but the true beauty of them is that they're they're so ready to be picked apart and he has no answers for you because he doesn't know himself. And that was actually, um, I held up a finger while you were talking about the ending in particular, um, which mm-hmm. we maybe we'll get into it now, but um, it made me so happy uh, to hear him on the commentary from front to back refer to the entire movie um, with double think. Like yep. he, he never once in the commentary commits to a single interpretation of the events that unfold. And that made me so happy because I don't know how many goddamn cracked articles I have read about this fucking film that point to, <laughs> oh, it fades to white. That means it's a dream because anytime you see a fade to white, it means it's a dream. It's like, yeah, okay, film school 101. Like sometimes it doesn't. And the director himself said as much that, you know, that is one way of looking at it. But, you know, the other point that you were talking about is Arnold. And that's, that's why this movie works, is because you have Arnold at the helm. If it was anyone else, you wouldn't be able to do that. Because when you see him doing all this ridiculous fucking bullshit that is cartoony as fuck and hilarious at times, even when it really shouldn't be, the reason why, the reason why it's acceptable is because you, the viewer want it to be true because it looks right like it's like well why can't he do that (laughs) well and a perfect example actually takes place right after you just see his head almost explode in the beginning it's him waking up from this nightmare he's freaking out this is supposed to be this traumatic recurring dream that like has been plaguing him but because it's arnold it's not you know a guy waking up in a cold sweat and having to be comforted by his wife who happens to be sharon stone no, it's Arnold who immediately launches from this traumatizing moment to trying to have sex with his wife, who happens to be Sharon Stone. <laughs> Which again, it's that like concept of this like he's this fantastical figure that like it's almost like they conceived of it. It's like what do you know? It's the Rennie Harlan you always bring up. It's like what do thirteen-year-old boys like? Yes. I know. <laughs> Let's make him an action superstar who's secretly a spy who also happens to be married to Sharon Stone. But that's not good enough. He also has this brunette woman he's dreaming about <laughs> that he himself describes as slutty and demure. So, like, 
Yeah, and he suffers multiple grievous injuries, none of which impede his progress whatsoever. Uh, there are multiple instances where literal walls get blown up behind him and somehow no one, not a single stray bullet catches him. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, every time he opens fire, he hits someone. He never misses. Like Everything just falls into place. He, he's Jerry Seinfeld. He always comes out even. <laughs> like, um, but... Um, yeah, I, I think that is part of the secret brilliance of the movie is that Paul Verhoeven, or Verhoeven, excuse me, um, his, uh, I, I love how he handles violence in his films. <laughs> I don't know what this says about me, but like, it's funny because when I, when I decided to put on Black Book, uh, Zwartbuch, um, mm-hmm. part of what was really fascinating about was like, I glanced at his filmography as I was putting it on. I was like, Holy fuck, I was raised by this man. <laughs> like, like almost every movie he made in my lifetime was a huge fucking deal in some way or another. Like yeah. Basic Instinct was one of those playground movies that I didn't see until I was a teenager. But the trailer for it preceded our uh, Terminator 2 VHS. So I, I knew that trailer frontwards and backwards. And I knew that it featured nudity and, and ice picking so i was like of course i want to see this i want to see michael douglas dance <laughs> but, and starship troopers i think was actually the very first r-rated movie i ever saw in the theater i remember it distinctly because my scandinavian friend um <laughs> whose ex-military father was the one who volunteered to take us when we were 13 and uh i remember he he giggled during the the shower scene in that movie <laughs> and it wasn't because there was nudity because he's scandinavian he didn't give two shits about it, it was because it was co-ed showers and he thought that was ridiculous <laughs> i was like okay <laughs> in retrospect that's kind of weird but okay but the way he handles violence it's like uh it really the point was really hammered home in my mind when I, when I finally saw Black Book because that movie actually deals with the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. Mm. And he grew up in that atmosphere. Yeah. And in knowing that, in bringing that baggage into his filmography, it's like, oh, no wonder there's so much fascist imagery in his movies. <laughs> and oh, no wonder the violence is so playful because he actually knows what it looks like. And for him, it's all a joke when it's in a movie. <laughs> so, so like, this is like him just like cutting loose and kind of like exercising some demons in some ways where it's like his, mo- his violence in his movies is always particularly gruesome. Like it's it, like his squibs are always gigantic <laughs> and there's always an emphasis put on how gruesome it is, but it's all make-believe. So it's like, it's just a big playground for him. And, I, and again, if you've seen him in interviews, you can tell it's like, Shit ain't real. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, actually a great point. And actually, I I think in you having said that, when I look back on some of that, that makes much more sense for some of the sequence of hyperviolence in this movie. Um, but yeah, it's it's so comical. He wakes up and he instantly goes from terror to being horny, which is. Arnold Horney is a hilarious sight to behold. Everybody should have to see, see that <laughs> just to form their own opinion. My my and favorite then, is uh my favorite is in the Running Man when uh, he breaks into Maria Conchita's uh, apartment and uh, <laughs> he like straps her to some exercise equipment <laughs> and he threatens her by lifting her. <laughs> it's like, don't make me say please. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> No, so then, like, th- this is one of those inst- 
it's like I said, where it is kind of left open to interpretation of, cause you're, you're seeing unbeknownst to you the first time viewing it, but you're seeing all these things foreshadowing what's about to occur. You know, there's this mysterious brunette woman. How is Mars involved? Why is this a recurring thing for him? Uh, he turns on the news and he's watching it and it's very much on par with like the RoboCop, like hyper exaggerated news feature where it's, it's showing um, some, uh, they're, I believe they're called uh, rebels on Mars. They're in a conflict with whoever the authorities are there. And essentially all you're watching are these authority guys like mowing down people who are trying to run away. <laughs> but it's like being framed as if these rebels are like putting up this massive fight and taking over the city. And so, you know, you get to watch this. And But these are all foreshadowing what his adventure is about to entail. Um, and then from there, he goes to work when he goes to work, this scene made me die laughing and maybe it's just me, but as my brother had said, he's, he's a construction worker. You know, it, it makes more sense for Arnold to be a construction worker than an accountant, but it's this panning shot of this rock quarry and all these guys are jackhammering for no reason. Cause there's these giant machines behind them. that are tearing down all these rocks around them much more efficiently, but there's like 20 guys all on jackhammers and Arnold is literally a foot taller. And like, three feet wider than all of them just going to down. You just see his big glistening muscles. But then the guy he's interacting with Robert Costanzo, right? Is the guy from what? Die Hard 2 and Merry uh, Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> he's uh, the voice of Harvey Bullock from the Batman animated series. Yeah. So you can look that up. It, it's worth your time to imagine. This guy is Arnold's contemporary. That's what cracks me up. It's like, this guy is, doing the same job as Arnold. Somehow Arnold manages to get this jagged body from doing this line of work. Meanwhile, this guy is just the epitome of slob. And yet they're just peers. Like there's no difference. Like Arnold isn't like an elevated status because he's clearly like capable of taking on more. Nope. They're just, everyone just is in this quarry, just jack everything. Like, that's all they do every day. <laughs> and then they start talking about uh, recall, which is uh the company that provides these dream sequences. Essentially, it's you get an implant that allows you to live out whatever fantasies you may have. Um, that's kind of the dystopic future portion of Total Recall. Is yeah, um, it just to backpedal like a couple of minutes. Um, the the foreshadowing aspect of I mean, you you talked about it, but um, it goes even deeper. Like it, mm -hmm. it's actually the other aspect of the commentary that was really fascinating to hear. Is that, uh, like I said, Paul Verhoeven doesn't really take a lot of credit for, like, the minutia of, like, some of the stuff that we, the viewer, think is so awesome about the movie. Um, but one thing that you can tell he knows intimately, like, and will hand, like, happily take credit for um, is the structure of the movie. Um, he is constantly talking about how each, each sequence, each movement in the film plays into the next. Um, and you can tell he has like the blueprint laid out in his head of, of what visual information needs to be con conveyed to the viewer in order to make the next leg of the journey be more impactful and make the most sense. And it comes down to like really subtle, really awesome things like um, putting Michael Ironside, um, having him stand in front of a fan, like one shot before the fan gets shut off. Just to mm -hmm. like to remind the viewer that, oh, hey, that, that thing is, that's a prop in that set. And when it stops moving, something bad's going to happen. <laughs> so he makes sure that the, you know, the people in the cheap seats can figure it out. And, you know, yeah. that's, that's yeah. not something to take for granted. That's how you make universally well-communicated stories. Um, 
but the foreshadowing, um, I thought it was really neat that they had, even in her first lines of dialogue, they had Sharon Stone urging him to forget about Mars. Mm -hmm. So if you want to come at it from that angle that, you know, oh, like it, this, this is not a fantasy or something, then you actually can look at that performance from, from beginning to end and, and push that narrative onto that where it's like, oh, she was a plant the whole time. She was telling him not to go to recall. She was telling him to forget about Mars and oh, hey, the news was on and he was really trying to watch it about the, the revolts going on and she kept getting in his way and getting extra flirtatious. Same with Robert Costanzo. Like, it's like recall. <laughs> like, they're gonna they're gonna fry your brains, Queen. <laughs> Which actually, um, yeah, that sequence foreshadows the the famous nose sequence mm -hmm. um, because you know lobotomy. You know, apparently you go through the nose in that way from for certain procedures. I've heard. Yeah. Um, yeah. The rock quarry and the drilling um, plays into one of the finale sequences. So yeah, there's constantly imagery and, and things that every moment, to you. every moment leading up to him going under is foreshadowing of something. I mean, there's even two headed monsters on the on the computer monitor when he's getting drowsy. And mm. I, there's an 80 yard line of dialogue from one of the doctors in the recall office that says, huh, cl clear blue skies on Mars. Imagine that <laughs> like, like every every moment. Uh, before he goes under is is somehow devoted to like planting the seeds of things to come mm -hmm. um, and it's not the first time it happens too we revisit that at the midway point too and it's, it's even more fun at that point <laughs> yeah and uh kind of going back to like I, I said jokingly but it's true like there's a part of me that feels like this movie was written for 13 year old boys but i do think it's fascinating from what i understand the the end of the actual novel is that the main character fantasizes about creating this major huge world event when he was a teenager it's almost for whatever reason that's a huge part of the story's end is that he was very very young when he did this thing that essentially saved the world hmm. so i think that that's why it's interesting the thought of arnold being like a 13 year old boy's fantasy of what oh. the ideal day would be which is wake up one day and become an action star overnight you know, and abandon your one model wife for a new model wife and, you know, all these things. Like, it's just, it's so bizarre. And there's a one, there's a famous critic, uh, or not critic, she's, she's a very well-renowned uh, feminist, uh, Susan Faludi, who I had heard, um, and I only know her name because my wife, who's much more educated than me, <laughs> has read a great deal of her works. But uh, she really panned this movie because it's such a just like very male, very just like the women almost serve no role in it. But again, in, in a sense, the only reason I think that it's funny looking at it now is the fact that it's, again, imagine this as the fantasy of a 13-year-old boy. And Arnold is the perfect muse just because he has that ability to just kind of treat everything is just like so over the top that it has to be a, a dream it can't just be a real person who's going through his day like this okay and see that's an interpretation i hadn't considered before but yeah actually you you could you could swing that it's like it's it's a dream within a dream type scenario where this is like a projection of of someone else this is someone else imagining the entire thing it's the what the saint elsewhere ending or whatever the, the mm. hospital in the glass globe <laughs> um, but um so yeah he's 
he is essentially Jack Slater in this movie. And and I don't think that's exaggerating, to be honest. I mean, but I will say this much, though. that the, the little person, the dwarf lady, she has agency in this film. <laughs> She's not just a prop. She stabs that man in the stomach on her own. She doesn't need no man to tell her how to do it. Well, skipping ahead here, but I was actually going to point out, too, I, I felt like the, the fight, the chick fight that occurs actually was pretty competent especially for this time very like much it, so. it didn't feel like shoehorned in there it actually i felt like it was some of the better choreography that because almost everything else just people falling over like being shot and you know falling back or diving over or whatever but like in that like it actually they engaged and had a what seemed like a somewhat legitimate fight for people who aren't martial arts experts so yeah um actually the the movie almost universally gets praised for that, especially of its time period. Um, like Hong Kong, you know, we had Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock doing like legit martial arts scenes and stuff. But right, right. In in the U.S., not so much. Um, but yeah, apparently it was it was a decision that Verhoeven himself made. That he was like, no, I want like 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 I said, his approach to violence is like it's going to be violent. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I don't want slaps and scratches. I w- I just want them to fight as people would fight regardless of their gender or sex or whatever. And uh, yeah, they took it upon themselves to actually choreograph some fight scenes. Um, Sharon Stone gets the bulk of it, but yeah, she, she does have a, a good scrap with a, uh, I always forget this lady's name it was uh, Rachel Ticotin, um, who has a instantly recognizable face, but as far as I know, her career didn't exactly take off, but always welcome every time I see her. But um yeah, they do have a pretty solid scrapper, and it's pretty rough and tumble. <laughs> and it's it uh it's kind of neat how little attention it draws to itself. It's like yeah. in a different movie, it would be like, oh my god, chick fight. But it's like, well, oh no, they, like even the music doesn't draw attention to the fact that oh, two ladies are punching each other now. It's it just seamlessly transitions into more fighting. Well, and that's where like i said i obviously susan Foley is a million times smarter than me so i'm not going to pretend like you know i i can refute any points here but what the other thing I, I thought that was fascinating was like the famous sequence with the woman with the three breasts that they are instantly revealed every time she's on the screen but that sequence always cracked me up because that felt like one of those things where a producer came onto the set one day and was like so you're gonna have boobs right <laughs> it's an action movie. You gotta have boobs, and and I mean I can't defend Paul Verhoeven because he gave us Basic Instinct and Showgirls. So I mean, there's also a good chance he's just kind of a scumbag. But I just have this thought of like how funny it would be if that was his response. Be like, okay, you want boobs? Here you go. Like, yeah. As far as I know, um, Paul Verhoeven is. Uh, I don't know how well he relates to the opposite sex. <laughs> um, um, that is something that that is a question that hangs over his filmography um, because, like you said, some of his stuff is a little not not necessarily exploitative, but he plays pretty fast and loose when it comes to like nudity and stuff, especially female nudity. But he does both. Um, but he does have those European sensibilities, so doesn't seem to mean as much to him, I guess, as it does to American actors. Apparently, he did lobby to to have Sharon Stone show some skin in this movie. She said no, but she said yes later in Basic Instinct. Um, 
But uh, famously uh, on the set of Starship Troopers, the, the aforementioned shower scene, apparently he was only allowed to do that by showing up naked to the set himself. Um, so, so he's very cavalier about that kind of stuff. But um, when it comes to the boob thing, um, well, the tri-boob in particular, I want to say that was Rob Bottin. Uh, because was, like I said, for- Rob Bottin was given a lot of free reign on this picture. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was like, hey, Paul, I made some tits. He's <laughs> like, oh, great, put it to film. <laughs> well, from what I, I read in, in, you know, taking 10 seconds of Wikipedia, this movie was um, that Paul Verhoeven's original idea was to have it be like, essentially like you would see an animal, like a farm animal type of, and that kind of got nixed by everyone. And this was kind of the compromise. But again, like, I'm glad you brought up that stupid shower sequence because the one thing I'll say about that, even though when you're a kid, you just view that as like, this is clearly just in here for, you know, to show naked women. Part of what makes that scene actually in Starship Troopers stand out is because they don't make a big deal out of it. It just happens. And that's kind of the whole point of the co-ed shower. Yeah. <laughs> is that no. They've advanced as a, you know, we've advanced as a people in the Starship Troopers universe to where people don't react to that as if it's taboo or anything. It's just people. Yeah, uh, it's it's like uh, Star Trek logic where it's like, I mean, Starship Troopers is a horrible example being as it's like a fascist <laughs> nightmare uh, bubbling just below the surface. That's, in case you didn't know, folks, that's the joke of that movie. <laughs> it's, it, everything looks great on the outside, but deep down it's horribly rotten. But um, it's like that Star Trek conceit of like, oh, we've, we've moved past racism and all that kind of stuff. We're a united Earth culture, not just like, we're a borderless civilization now. And uh, funny enough, that kind of extends to Verhoeven's like casting. Like he's, mm-hmm. he, he's very comfortable with working with people of all genders and races. Like his, his films are fairly progressive for the most part. Like if you look at his filmography, it's like, Oh wow. This, this cast is pretty well filled out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't really come up at all, all in total recall, but I did find it a little fascinating that like, um, the uh, the mutant folk on Mars are kind of viewed as like, you know, they're looked down upon, but like then anybody of a different race, there's tons of extras. There's, there's, you know, many different people he interacts with that it's just, that doesn't play a factor at all. So, um, but yeah, it goes from there. He goes and decides he's going to treat himself to that two week uh, brain vacation at recall because what is it, his birthday or he just decides he has a hankering to, t- to tune out for two weeks? Like, I think he just wanted to, you know, take all of his life savings and flush it down the toilet without right. telling his wife. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, uh, he sees it, an advertisement like on his way to work, I think, for, for recall or maybe at breakfast because they have TV advertisements and stuff. And in this world, TVs are everywhere. They are your walls. Um, and yeah, he goes into the office and uh, he he gets a hell of a sales pitch it's this this fellow really uh really really like gets his finger to his pulse he figures him out pretty quick and uh, he offers him the super duper fantasy package where um not only do you get to travel like in your in your implanted memory but you also get to assume a different identity he's like what like the ultimate vacation is a vacation from yourself and uh he selects the secret agent package because why the fuck not? <laughs> um, and I, I, I really love, uh, I really love the interaction, like the banter between all the people in the office. Like they make it 
they really do make it seem like such a routine thing, like mm-hmm. an invasive surgery involving altering someone's memory. <laughs> <laughs> but it, his demeanor, like like he was cast and expressly told to behave like a used car salesman. And mm-hmm. he does it really, really well. It's it's very entertaining. And I like the doctors. The one lady reminded me of uh, Janine from Ghostbusters with her yeah, horn exactly. glasses. And she she's fun. She's only in a couple scenes, but she's a lot of fun. But um, like you and said, I like that she's actually the competent one, whereas the the male doctor he sees is just the used car salesman. She's actually the one who does the implant and is like responsible for the true work. So yeah, but when when all the shit hits the fan, it's the salesman who <laughs> picks up all the pieces right quick. Um, but yeah, basically, um, they strap him into a chair and uh, they sedate him and they run a series of questions by him to get a feel for what he's looking for in his fantasy. And, and this is the aforementioned foreshadowing that I was mentioning that they, she drugs him. And as he's starting to get drowsy, she's like, Oh, you know, here's some Martian imagery for you to mull over while we get everything set up. And it just so happens that, you know, there's two headed monsters and, and like Martian pyramids and stuff, all images that we will see later in this film. Um, and then, they he basically um tells her all the characteristics of his dream woman uh from the the opening of the film um and she becomes a part of the template for his memory implant and as soon as he goes under uh we cut to the salesman talking with another client and uh on his video phone uh, there's some fucking chaos unfolding in the operating room <laughs> And uh, he's brought in there because Arnold is kicking and screaming, oh, you blew my cover! <laughs> <laughs> and the story that's imparted to us, the viewer, um, at this point is that he is freaking out because when they opened him up or whatever, uh, he has a previously existing memory implant of some sort. Uh, so someone else got in there before they did. Uh, so their plan, and like I said, the salesman comes up with this right quick, <laughs> is, okay, put him under, we're going to refund his money, throw him in a Johnny cab, and then, like, anybody asks, he came here, we never seen him. <laughs> like, and he comes up with that real quick, so something tells me it's happened before. <laughs> I love the fact too that he's meeting with another client when that goes down, so it gets interrupted. It's like, oh yeah, no, it's just a brain vacation. Then it's like, no, you have Arnold in the background kicking and screaming. Well, yeah, not only that, but like the the terminology, the vocabulary they use over the video phone, playing directly into that guy's office is like schizoid embolism. (laughs) It's like, um, I don't exactly know what those words mean, but I have an idea. um but yeah he wakes up in the johnny cab and then uh, we get our our first taste of well no the the head explosion the near head explosion was the first taste of violence but we get our first like proper action beat and that would be him arriving um it's like at the i don't know bus station or something um it's actually like the uh, Mexico City Military Academy. They they reuse this location many times in the film, and it stands out because it looks interesting. Yeah, definitely. It's a brutalist architecture. Um, it's a it's a fun word. Look it up, folks. But um, <laughs> anyway, Robert Costanzo, <laughs> Harry, Harry is waiting for him there, and uh, he apprehends our hero Quaid Arnold, 
And his reason for doing so is you blabbed, Quaid. You blabbed about Mars. <laughs> like, as only he can say. Um, and what happens there, Matt? <laughs> um, then Arnold becomes action Arnold. He kicks a bunch of ass. He breaks some necks. He, you know, proves that he's massive and bigger than everybody. But this goes back to, like I was saying before, the idea of, like, how is this not a 13 year old boy's fantasy? Like who else would think that it's like my idea of a relaxing vacation from my drudgery of life is to break people's necks and be on the lamb and shoot people in public. <laughs> yeah. It's funny too. Cause if you look at the choreography, he, he does the, he bashes two people's faces together like a child would do, like a child would think is a viable combat tactic. So yeah, it is very playful, even though it's extremely gruesome. And yeah, in no way would I ever want this to be part of my life narrative. This sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this, the soundtrack and, and Arnold's demeanor kind of trick us, the viewer, into thinking, oh, that looks like fun. <laughs> like, yeah, I just shot my old best friend. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he kills like four or five people here, no problem, including Harry. He breaks his neck and takes his gun. And um, then he's covered in blood. He's seven feet tall, 350 pounds of muscle and he manages to escape through the city totally undercover yep makes it home without incident <laughs> no cops i don't think we ever see a cop in this movie to be honest no, no. <laughs> um but yeah the next like the the movie the whole narrative it's uh, part of the appeal of this movie is the momentum of it um it moves like it it never drags it, it's always moving it's almost like a chase film um from this point onward um yeah and one of the things that was really cool to hear the director talk about, about the way he was structuring the film, was that he described certain scenes as unfolding the way they do strictly because, oh, we, we can't get ahead of ourselves because we need to pace it out. Like there's a scene when he finally does meet Melina, uh, the girl from his dreams, and uh, she kicks him out of her room. And he was like, oh, she could tell him really important plot details here, but I don't want her to because we still have some more movie left and, you know, I'd like to keep those, you know, in my, in my back pocket and for when I really need them. And I thought that was so fascinating to hear because that really is a huge part of just making a, a solid movie, not even a great movie, just a good movie is knowing, knowing how to like get that drip feed at the right pace, like knowing, knowing when to really hit the gas and when to let up a little bit, um, but never stop. Um, but yeah, this, I love this that you you say that as we're just about to get to a scene where Sharon Stone kicks Arnold in the crotch four times in a row. <laughs> I'm trying to class it up. God damn it. <laughs> yes. And then ends with him delivering a massive Hollywood haymaker to her on his way out the door. Yeah. Like, to his wife who he loves presumably, but, but yeah, uh, she turns out to be part of the agency, which is never named as far as I know, but um, basically she's a bad guy. That's all you really need to know. And she, is part of the conspiracy um, that Harry was a part of as well. And yeah, yeah, she kicks the shit out of him. And yes, no joke, she kicks him in the nuts at least twice. And he shakes it off. No problem. <laughs> Again, it's, it's worth it just to see Arnold being kicked in the balls multiple times and no selling the kick to the balls. Yeah, he no sells two kicks to the balls. Like, I don't, like Kevin Nash, Goldberg, Hulk Hogan, all of them succumbed to China's low blow. Each yeah. and every one of those men has been felled by the low blow. 
Arnold, Arnold takes two, and he doesn't even stop. <laughs> 13-year-old boy fantasy. He's such an alpha that he has, like, an iron cock. That, like, <laughs> you can kick him in the junk multiple times, and nothing happens. Well, I mean, you practically expect someone to actually actually have, like, like not sub-stormtrooper aim. And, and like, they, they actually get a clear shot on him. It goes <laughs> off of his mighty pecs. <laughs> but... Yeah, uh, I did like that. Uh, again, the Paul Verhoeven strikes um, during this during the fisticuff. She grabs a kitchen knife and she does get some good slices on him, which factor into the narrative not at all. But you know, it was makeup effects budget that he felt was necessary, and I appreciate it because it's like, okay, if you're gonna swing a knife at someone, you know, generally people get cut. Um, and yeah, he devoted some attention to detail there. But in terms of like selling the injuries, Arnold does, he doesn't have time for that. <laughs> so, he doesn't budge. He yeah, does, he doesn't budge at all. Um, he grunts. Yeah. <laughs> I like the on the commentary when he does get kicked in the nuts. He says, ow, that hurt. <laughs> but uh, he said that, um, funny enough, like I guess uh, Grace Jones in Conan the Destroyer, um, everyone on the set was terrified of her because she handles a, a staff in that movie and she was a, a monstrosity. Like she was just <laughs> whacking the shit out of people left and right. Like she didn't know how to play fight. She didn't know how. So she would just <laughs> go nuts on people and everyone was scared of her. But apparently Sharon Stone, like she did all the steps of the choreography and she didn't hurt anyone. So Arnold is very thankful for that. Although he did break a finger, um, not with her, but like a, a scene later in the movie. Um, <laughs> But yeah, at this point, we're introduced to one of the major antagonists of the film. And I'm so happy he's here because uh, Michael Ironside, I, I love Michael Ironside. He is the grumpiest Canadian. <laughs> he's so goddamn Canadian, but he has that voice and the receding hairline. And he just looks like a nasty motherfucker. <laughs> and he's a great bad guy. Like, he's so he good at it. And, you know, like standing opposite Arnold, you can tell he doesn't have the same physicality, but he's got that, like, pitbull like tenacity about him that you 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 could believe he could take him if if the i don't know the wind changed just right or something <laughs> yeah no, i mean that that's actually a fair assessment because he really does kind of present himself as just like he'll do anything to get the job done and that's like his strength is that he's just kind of you know i mean essentially he's lending his his girlfriend <laughs> to arnold for to you know plant the seed or whatever it was again part of this big conspiracy that is hard to keep up with admittedly from time to time yeah it, well like, it's because it, it grows and it transforms so many times as we get towards the end which supports the dream idea where it's like okay this is so inspiring into madness and their brain kind of like firing neurons to try to like piece everything together and like stitch it all together when it doesn't make sense so yeah there's a couple of things right now that that stand out it's like for one, it's, I think that this is why it cements its legacy as the ultimate playground movie in many ways, because I guarantee you probably a huge percentage of people who have seen this movie could not tell you the actual plot because there's just certain beats that stand out that people just make assumptions about when they're trying to remember, recall it. Uh, you know, for instance, like most people would just say, oh, it's Mars, it's aliens. You know, it, that's all it is. It's this guy who fights aliens on Mars. You know, it, it it just all kind of blends in because there's just so many different working parts going on 
that, you know, how can you remember unless you've watched it multiple times? And maybe that's part of the appeal again, because it's supposed to be a mindfuck movie. What comes next though, actually stood out beyond just playground movies, but like um, the sequence when he goes through the, what is it? The X-ray machine and he gets caught with a pistol. That was a huge deal when this movie came out because at the time that was, it was like comical for people, the thought of imagining that we're going to ever live in a world where this is going to be a part of your day-to-day life. Like everyone thought it was just like so out of this world that it's like this future where you have to be like scanned before you can go onto like the subway, like get out of here. Fast forward 2020. It's like, yeah, you can't even wear your shoes onto the damn plane. (laughs) Well, I mean, certain, certain neighborhoods, you can't even go to school. <laughs> Honestly, well, yeah, now especially but, with the pandemic. But, but yeah, the idea of like a you know that police state kind of air about things, like yeah, that was that was a very foreign idea, and like it's a it's one of those subtle concepts that you know Paul Verhoeven like kind of injected there on the sly. That um, there's not a whole lot of it in this movie. It's definitely there. It's not as strong as say like RoboCop, which is a dark dark tale um which is only heroic um if you narrow the focus strictly on the central character uh, mm-hmm. everything else that happens in that movie is like dystopian as can be but yeah um total recall has some hints of it in the form of uh, those early news reports you talked about mm-hmm. um cuz Ronnie Cox who is the actual like major antagonist of the film um Cohagen uh, he Velos Cohagen <laughs> I don't know if it's Verhoeven himself or like just the writers he works with, but some of the names in his movies, Clarence Boddicker, Velos Cohagen. <laughs> like what the fuck? <laughs> but um, he mentions on the news report, even before any of the dream stuff, um, like at, re- at recall and whatnot, uh, there's a war, like just a war going on that the reason why the Mars situation is a problem is that it's a major exporter of uh, raw materials needed for something fueling the war effort. We don't know the nature of the war, but we do know that whatever civilization it is that our central characters are part of, uh, it's not exactly peaceful. Um, Mm -hmm. And based on how many guns and armed soldiers there are in, in many, many locations in this movie, uh, it suggests that maybe humanity's not on its best path right now sure absolutely i mean that that comes much much later when he gets to mars you kind of see it all on display constantly i I think it's most important though just to note that if that's an element of the script even before he gets to gets his ass to mars (laughs) (laughs) but speaking of which um him getting his ass to mars happens pretty swiftly actually um, basically, we're introduced to Michael Ironside's Richter, who is essentially the right-hand man of Cohagen. He's the chief pursuer, um, so he's he's the top goon. Like he he's always a half step behind. He always gets some shots off. He never actually hits him, but he's always there to see him, just so he can go when he gets away from him. And all of his buddies die constantly all around him, <laughs> but he always lives because he needs a special death at the end because it's that kind of movie my kind of movie <laughs> but we get like a, a brilliant foot chase um like you said with the x-ray 
Um, there's that trailer worthy moment where he jumps through the x-ray machine complete with Sega Genesis noise. <laughs> and uh, it needs to be said, I haven't drawn too much attention to it, but the score for this movie was done by Jerry Goldsmith, um, who is near the top of my list of like composers I miss the most um, because man, like he, he put in work for many, many decades and just, when I think of the word adventure in movies, he's who I think of. Like he had a he had a knack for adventure scores. Not not like brutal action scores, but just like adventure. So like First Blood and Rambo and stuff. And and this one in particular is fantastic. But um check out his work if you're not familiar. Um, because he, he put in work for this one. But um, the music that plays over all the chase scenes is fantastic in this movie. In particular, this scene and my favorite moment is the escalator. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> the escalator is amazing um, because it involves Arnold. Um, and apparently, um, despite how incredibly graphically violent this movie is, uh, the director expressed uh, some disappointment at the fact that the MPAA did cut several frames from his final cut of the movie so there is no unrated cut of the movie but just like probably every movie he's ever made um it's it's not as violent as he intended but um <laughs> the the choreography here is outstanding where it's it's arnold using a man as a hand puppet <laughs> human shield and this this guy is just loaded to the gills with squibs and he gets shot like 30 fucking times and uh, not only does he block guys from shooting him from one direction he manages to turn around and continue to block bullets <laughs> yeah so this this quaid character uh who is apparently supposed to be a secret agent unbeknownst to himself um has herculean strength such that he can carry a human being with one arm and shoot people with the other arm accurately with accuracy <laughs> and, and yeah he's strong enough to like just like just lug him around oh yeah and choke slam him down the escalator at michael ironside it's amazing <laughs> and, and then it ends with michael ironside stepping on the corpse as thank if you. it wasn't bad enough <laughs> yeah thank you for pointing that out because yes that that is something the director felt needed to be in there <laughs> He told that stunt performer, nope, don't move. <laughs> like, why? Because Mike needs to step on you. <laughs> it'll, it'll put emphasis on the action scene. It's punctuation, goddammit. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we go on this chase scene and Arnold escapes and we get a... Uh, it's, it's funny because it, it... Like I said, this movie is, is structured in such a way that every time you want to narrow your eyes and say, wait a minute. <laughs> um, <laughs> like Arnold's presence and just the relentless momentum of the film, like force you to hand wave it all away. Because what we get is something you would call a hackneyed, like a really artificial like moment where Arnold checks into like a roach motel and then he just gets a fucking phone call from some random guy with a mullet. <laughs> 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 and the guy's like, hey, you. And he's like, who are you? And he's like, I got your suitcase. What suitcase? And he's like, come here and pick it up so you can have a comedic beat with this old lady. And uh, yeah, I can, I can tell you. Steal. Yeah, and I can uh, give you some really cool gadgets that you can use later in the movie. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so it comes out of nowhere. Uh, apparently, it's actually a staple of Philip K. Dick's writing. Um, I haven't actually read the man's work, but um, nobody on the commentary had a problem with this. 
nor should they because like i said arnold being on screen like forces you to forgive any shortcomings the script might have in terms of structure um, but this is where we get him riding around in the johnny cab uh, with a turban like he has a towel wrapped around his head because uh, the guy on the phone told him he has a tracking device in his head and he has a suitcase and we get this funny beat where the johnny cab's like where do you want to go sir and, and he's like shit shit <laughs> and johnny cab doesn't know where shit shit is <laughs> and uh we have a chase scene and uh what's actually uh, god damn this was so funny to hear on the commentary because it's one of those things i would never think about but this fucking director did and it it's kind of important actually when you think about it is that when arnold escapes from michael ironside um in the johnny cab and he doesn't pay his fare for some reason the johnny (laughs) cab is automatically programmed to try to run him down (laughs) and the johnny cab this android cab uh, crashes into a construction area and explodes and Arnold starts laughing on the commentary. That doesn't make any sense. Why would it explode? <laughs> and the director's like, because we needed a reason for Michael Ironside to find you. And an explosion in a construction site is a reason for him to show up. And I was like, that does make sense. <laughs> but it's stupid and I love it. <laughs> But you want to tell the folks at home about the uh, the lobotomy or whatever? <laughs> well, again, like this is the part where it really, really felt like this is Paul Verhoeven just being like, I can make Arnold do whatever I want because it's always gold. Like when he makes him put the head wrap on, it, it's comical because it you can describe it as a turban. I actually think it looks like, you know, when you wash your hair and you wrap, make it into a head wrap, but the thought of, again, Arnold, who's this massive figure running around a city with this, looking like he just stepped out of the shower and wrapped his hair up into a bun. It's just so absurd. <laughs> nobody stops him. Nobody like comments on it. It's just like, it just makes me think that they were sitting around. It's like, what's the most ridiculous thing we can make him do and frame it as if this is the way we cover up for this thing that's in your head. So anyway, he goes, he opens up the suitcase and it's a recording of himself. And it lays out all these major plot points about how he needs to, you know, get to Mars, get your ass to Mars, essentially. Comical scene again, 13-year-old boy in my viewing of the thing, because he's saying you're eating a candy bar while he's watching this incredibly, like, imagine getting a, th- a video from yourself that you weren't aware of existed. It's telling you you're involved in this massive conspiracy, but at that moment, your first, your only thought is like, I need to eat. <laughs> I think I have a candy bar. Well, maybe that was a maybe that was an Arnoldism because um, when uh, when he first wakes up from the nightmare, the first thing we cut to after he bangs his wife is uh, him blending oatmeal and like making a power protein shake. <laughs> So yeah, I mean true. that's the only way you're gonna stay huge is if you keep your calories up. So <laughs> it's like I'm on the run. I need to stay huge. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> but, but I like that uh, when when the video of uh, himself pops up, his reaction is to just kind of like look at it dull faced and be like, "No shit." <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I forgot to count. I meant to, but god damn it, um, I meant to count how many times he says the word bullshit. because arnold says bullshit in a lot of his movies but in this one i swear he says it like six times (laughs) 
everything's bullshit. It was all bullshit. <laughs> I swear, he says it at least six times in this movie. Um, but yeah, uh, he gets this message from himself that he's part of this big conspiracy. Apparently, his actual self, who is not him, uh, knows some shit about what's going on in Mars, so he needs to get his ass to Mars to fix it. Um, and he has a tracking device in his head. Um, which he knows about now, but now he has a tool in the suitcase which uh, is automated in such a way they can extract it from his head. Uh, so we get some lovely Rob Bottin, uh Arnold puppet head action, which looks stunning. Like it really does. Like it, it does. It, like, it actually. It, it, he's doing his Arnold grimace face, and it, it looks perfect. They got the teeth right, that's for sure. <laughs> and he pulls this this glowing red. It's like it's big. It's like a Cadbury egg. Big <laughs> comes out of his nose, and it's a tracking device. And uh, he uh, stuffs it in a piece of his candy bar and uh, throws it to the rats. And uh, he leaves the suitcase there and he takes off and Michael Ironside, of course, is a half step behind him. So he shows up and uh, they shoot at the rats and uh, they discover he's not there. And we get a lovely scene transition involving a video message of Arnold repeatedly saying, get your ass to Mars, get your ass to Mars, (laughs) get your ass to Mars. And apparently that was a cost saving measure. That's (laughs) That's <laughs> apparently <laughs> they used that line of dialogue because they couldn't afford to shoot like him getting onto a spacecraft. <laughs> like so they're like, huh, how do we tell the viewer what's about to happen? It's like, well, we could just have you tell them what <laughs> like like literally just look into the camera and tell them where we're going. It's like, wow, that's cost effective. Damn. And uh the next sequence is uh at the like Mars terminal. Um so we right away just cut to Mars. Uh, After which, he shoots the rat and it explodes and into it a violent explodes. explosion Look, all over Arnold's face. Again, very efficient filmmaking though, because the reason they did that was so the red blood would splash on the screen and then we could fade to the red sky of Mars. <laughs> and I mean, it's grim, it's just twisted, but hey, that's kind of cool. <laughs> but we get the terminal sequence, which is um, the back of the box uh, still images that we talked about at the top of the recording. Um, where Arnold uses a disguise that he apparently got in that suitcase, which is a, a s- cyborg head of a lady, and uh, he wears it along with a, a ginger wig and like a yellow frock, and it's enormous woman <laughs> walks into the. Terminal. I was just gonna say again for like that's the comical thing about Arnold movies. Like this one in Commando, I think are the worst in terms of like he just looks so much bigger than anybody around him. And yeah. so now he's now he's playing a middle-aged woman who's just casually walking amongst crowds of people and nobody is phased by this in the slightest. I think Again. they cast her specifically because she was a very large woman. Uh, because oh, yeah. like in stature and just like with <laughs> like it's like she's enormous compared to everyone else in the terminal. <laughs> but you're you actually do have a point though, and, and I think it does speak to what you're what you're theorizing about the whole production <laughs> like the whole thing is kind of like a, a big cartoon show and it's like a little bit of a goof on Arnold in some ways um, I, I really think so like that part like when you describe him pulling the Cadbury egg out of his nose like it really is drawn out in this like ridiculous like way longer than it needs to be sequenced that right now if they were to make this film again now or for the third time I guess it would just be a quick little like, you know, you press a button, it's done. You know, it, there's no need to show Arnold struggling to pull this massive thing, glowing 
orange thing out of his face. Well, you know, I mean, not to completely derail us, but like in, in the, the vast galaxy of action stars, um, I think that is one of Arnold's key characteristics, him and Van Damme both. Mm-hmm. Um, it separates them from the, from the pack in a very big way, especially the Steven Seagal's of the world, is that they have the capacity to laugh at themselves. Uh, Van Damme in particular dressed, him down, dressed, dressed himself down right from the get-go, and Arnold came into it big time later on, like when he actually started doing like comedic roles in earnest. Um, but like guys like Steven Seagal and to slightly lesser degree, Sylvester Stallone, they just seemed less willing to, to goof on themselves as much. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, maybe the idea wasn't explicitly floated by Arnold being as he had creative control of a lot of this film, but I wouldn't be surprised if he had enough, sense of himself and his place in Hollywood to know that like, Hmm, maybe it would be good for me to be able to like laugh at my own movies rather than buy into my own hype. Like Steven Seagal would later do. If I recall, this one came out after twins. So perfect timing. Um, I think that, yeah, he had gotten his first kind of taste of being able to do more than just be the big lug. So, I mean, that's how you become governor at some point is you, you're multifaceted. You're able to, play every angle and yeah if you're one note then your your action charisma can only take you so far but arnold was was and continues to be bigger than that but um yeah the the one point i wanted to say about that though is um i i do think you're onto something because um most of arnold's other action films up to this point um he was cast opposite a lot of other bodybuilders and other large people Mm-hmm. Um, because there was always the desire to have him pitted against like a, a physical match, like Vernon yeah. Wells, as as bad as that chainmail get up and commando looked, <laughs> Vernon Wells had some inches on him at least. Like he was taller than him, and like mm-hmm. Bill Duke, big guy, yeah. and um, uh, Sven Oli Thorson, the the king of all that guys, the king of all goons, <laughs> was in so many of Arnold's movies, and he was enormous. Um, but we don't really have any of those guys in this movie. Um, on the whole, like they're, it's all just generic goons for the most part. I'm sure they were all working stunt people. I recognized at least one of these goons from RoboCop. Um, so that would be a connection from the director. But we don't have a Sven Oli Thorson. We don't have a, like a, a Raiders of the Lost Ark giant Nazi guy who shows up for a <laughs> fist fight. Everybody just shows up and gets knocked down in this one. <laughs> and playing to the whole... Um secret agent vibe to it i guess that's that makes sense because he dispatches everybody rather casually like there's really i think only one sequence where he seems somewhat in peril the rest of the time he's always like two steps ahead of everybody oh yeah no every other scene like with the exception of michael ironside's little scrap with him and it's a little scrap (laughs) like it's always like four guys and and just one arnold and he's only subdued one out of like five times (laughs) and it's only because he needs to be so he can be saved by the lady later um so the that sequence we're describing though it's iconic because of the costume and it malfunctions when he's in the process of going through customs um you know Again, it's a repeating over and over. It just keeps saying two weeks, two weeks. Um, interesting point that they said that it's a two-week trip when you di- when you get the recall implant. That it's two weeks a period of time. 
that you're essentially in your mind, you know, on this mental vacation. So you could speculate that the reason it freezes up when it says two weeks is that it's past the point that he was actually allowed to be in the recall universe. Wow. That's, and, that's a deep cut, but that you're on something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but brilliant because I love the fact that they never explain anything in this movie where, you know, he reveals himself from the costume, you know, people go to try to attack him, but he throws the head and it turns into a bomb instantly. <laughs> What the famous line was it uh, ready like, for a surprise. Yeah, get ready for a surprise and then it blows up. Um I don't even know if he knew that was gonna happen. <laughs> he could have just yeah. been hoping that hot potato would be enough to get him out of there. <laughs> but yeah, it blows up and uh we get some fucking idiots. Um Michael Ironside being chief among them because he is hot headed. Because I mean I'd be kind of upset too if you know Arnold was laying with my girlfriend for <laughs> six weeks she said <laughs> so that, that that would kind of irk me a bit so if i had a chance to shoot him i probably i'd probably do it even though i'm you know on fucking mars and there's windows <laughs> so yeah the windows go out and we get um a vacuum effect and people getting sucked out it's very reminiscent of like goldfinger um the end of that film but yeah uh, the cool thing uh, is that because of that opening sequence where Arnold's Pfizer cracked, we know what happens to those people when they go out the window. And it's like, oh no, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Arnold escapes and uh, he immediately like sets out across Mars and he goes to the, uh, he goes to like a hotel to like pick up some extra clues. It's really not a big deal, um, but he, there's some neat little details here. Uh, where like he checks his handwriting along with a handwritten note to make sure that it was actually him and it, it matches. But anyway, he finds a flyer in the hotel like safety deposit box that guides him to the red light district, and uh, he gets a cabbie um, who becomes a uh, an appendage to him for the remainder of the film for the most part um, in the form of Benny. <laughs> Interesting. This is where the dystopic view is fascinating to me because. Just much like I was ragging on the fact that Arnold's original job in this movie or Quaid is working in a rock quarry, jackhammering away for seemingly no apparent reason. Uh, it's very similar to like this where he gets to Mars and, and he meets a cabbie. But in reality, it's like you just saw back on earth that they have the Johnny cab system, like automated cars that just make the round. So like clearly we're in a, a setting where jobs are disappearing and that there's a few scattered ones that kind of exist only just to exist and so it's fascinating like there's a lot of like little hints of that it's not nearly as as much as like robocop kind of lays out of just like a terrifying future but there's hints of kind of like why the structure which very much once they're in mars becomes this corporate world versus the masses kind of thing so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could you could almost theorize based on the chassis of the vehicle that it's like maybe they ripped the Johnny out of the Johnny cab and just turned it into a, a manual driven vehicle just to make a living. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's kind of funny actually how the the plot of this movie ends up becoming Spaceballs, <laughs> 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 like literally. That's a great point. <laughs> but um, Benny uh, becomes like his his go to guy for getting around town, and uh, he's got five kids to feed, and he reiterates that many a time in this film. But um, he goes to a strip club 
um, which has the only piece of music in the movie that sucks, which is this electronic loop that's only, it's like a Marvel versus Capcom 2, the gonna take you for a ride, and that's it. <laughs> it's like that bad in terms of how short it is. It's like a 10 second composition that just keeps looping. I was going to say, just imagine any like crappy Nintendo game that's supposed to take place in the future. Just like, yeah, it's, it's like an electronic brass tune that it's supposed to be like sleazy saxophone music played on a synthesizer, but it it's too short to the point that's, I heard this man. <laughs> like, can we, can we get to the next one? Um, but yeah, uh, along the way, we, we were introduced to a lot of the mutants um, who are displaying psychic abilities of some sort. Like they, they're able to determine things about the future and about people that they really shouldn't be able to. Like there's a little girl that knows his birthday and there's like other people masquerading as like palm readers and stuff. So put a pin in that. Um, it's funny, one of the key mutants in the movie is played by Dean Norris, who um, folks at home you probably know is one of the major players in breaking bad um i only saw the first season of that show but he's he's a he's one of those guys that pops up in some fun sci-fi from time to time like he's in starship troopers as well um oh. and the lawnmower man of all things <laughs> but um he's it's kind of funny i think he's also in terminator too so maybe arnold like brought him on because uh, he's one of the swat guys i think in that so he doesn't even appear without his mask on um but yeah, he's one of the chief mutants here. But this is where we get introduced to Melina, who is the woman from Arnold's Dreams. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, she's here to push the plot forward. And and uh, they do a good job of telegraphing, like, uncertain emotions between the two of them. Like, there's some sort of past there. It's never really clearly defined. But the idea is uh, his past self, um, whoever he was before the memories were implanted in him, uh, had a thing for her. And then uh, was dissatisfied with Cohagen and the situation on Mars and became a turncoat of sorts. But um, she's all, all, you know, all sorts of fiery towards him. She's not, she's happy to see him, but she's also not. So she's like slapping him around and then kissing him and then slapping him again. And then the conversation ends with her kicking him out of her, her upstairs room um, with a gun to his head. <laughs> um, which brings us to the midway point of the movie where, uh, we get uh, a really critical point in the narrative that's it's so much fun. Uh, this would be where the head of uh, Recall shows up at his uh, hotel room, at Quaid's hotel room, uh, casually invites himself in and exposits to him about uh, this kind of similar to like the Matrix Reloaded or some shit. <laughs> it's just some random guy shows up in a suit and starts telling you, your whole life is a lie. <laughs> Yeah, and again, it's it's one of those sequences where it literally, he literally says, like, your your world is going to start collapsing onto you. And then the moment where it transitions back into an action movie when Quaid catches the guy sweating and theorizes that, you know, clearly he's lying to him and trying to snap him out of it, uh, that the big bads break down the walls and try to get him, essentially. So, Yeah, it's uh, a it's a beautiful moment because... Uh, we repeat that beat uh, that happened at the recall office at the very beginning of the movie where the entire narrative is spelled out to us where the salesman told him you'll you'll have these adventures you'll do everything that happens in this movie and same here like he's holding a gun to the guy's head and the guy is telling him i'm a i am a projection of a person i have no reason to fear your gun because i'm not an actual physical being 
this is all happening in your head. And uh, he even references Cohagen. He's like, oh, next thing you know, you'll be Cohagen's bosom buddy. And sure enough, that ends <laughs> up being a plot development later on in the movie. And like you said, there is literal mention of <laughs> the walls of reality breaking down. Sure enough, as soon as the bullet goes through that guy's forehead, spoiler alert, the fucking wall blows up behind Arnold. So yes, this this is a very well-tailored and structured script that, that we know what we're doing. We know the game we're playing. Um, and I think it's so beautiful that you, you can choose to come at the narrative any way you wish. And it, it's an enjoyable experience no matter how you slice it. Um, so if you want to treat it as just an ordinary Arnold adventure, as I did actually when I was young, like oh, I, yeah, never, I, never th- I never thought about the layered narrative aspect of the movie. I didn't, I cracked.com didn't exist. Nobody was going on and on about the fade to white at the end of the movie. In my mind, I was like, oh, that was a fun Arnold movie. What's the next one? <laughs> no, it, that, that's what I was alluding to before. It's like, honestly, like, I'm pretty sure I would have been one of those people who's like, oh, yeah, it's the one with the Martians where, you know, with the three boob lady and, you know, yeah. the exploding head. Like, you know, you don't realize how, like, much depth was in a movie that didn't need it. <laughs> but it works. It works because they just took it for a ride and just made it fun. You know, they really use their Arnold to their maximum. And there's a part of me thinks it's comical, just the thought of maybe this was Arnold's creative control and maybe he just has the mind of a 13-year-old boy and was just like, oh, yeah, that would be a great idea. Let's do that. I mean, but, I forget if I sent it to you, but there's that interview with him talking on and on and on about stogies, <laughs> about so- smoking my stogies. <laughs> he is a little bit of a child. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that that's what... Personally, I think it's funny to, to imagine, but I really do re- feel like Paul Verhoeven took it and was like, how can we just keep this going? Like, how do we keep this from stalling? Because you do get the sense too, because there's so much layered and probably this was a result of going through developmental hell and being rewritten by so many different people and also coming from uh, an original story that was much drier and bland than what they ended up creating with it is that Arnold continually can just propel it forward because it doesn't matter when he's on the screen. Just throw anything you want. That's why I believe like the sequence of him pulling something out of his head or throwing the old, or dressing up in this giant woman costume is just because like we can do whatever we want. We have Arnold. <laughs> like it bails us out of anything. Yeah, it, it's a get out of jail free card. And like I said, Raw Deal is an example of not, not acknowledging that like not embracing that rather. Um, Whereas this movie wholeheartedly is just like, Oh, that's the script we're working with. Well, that's gotta go. (laughs) Like that's gotta be made bigger. (laughs) It's been going on forever. I mean, how many crap movies are made with three just threw John Wayne on there and people just ate it up. You know, they're doing it right now with the rock, you know, wrestling throughout the entire eighties was just Hulk Hogan being carted out and thrown up on into the ring and just doing his same routine over and over and over again. And nobody complained. Well, maybe once or twice, (laughs) but but, you know, that's neither here nor there. That's a different (laughs) podcast, (laughs) but yeah, this is the, like the major turning point in the narrative. And it really, really picks up speed at this point. Cause as soon as that doctor character hits the ground, uh, Sharon Stone's in the room and uh, they subdue Arnold and Molina shows up. We have the aforementioned lady fight uh, where Sharon Stone is uh, shot in the face by her husband. Um, 
consider, consider the, the divorce. divorce. Yeah, it's one of the better lines. Um, they did credit a screenwriter, so Arnold did not come up with it. Like I said, it, you got to be kind of a cool guy to to do that, to to be the action star, to to carry the fucking movie on your shoulders, but still give credit where credit is due. And Arnold did that on the commentary, and that made me very to happy. Be fair though, he has so many one-liners down this this last like final stretch because it really, like you say, it gets legs now because now it, it's just a blur, basically. Yeah, yeah a blur we, of amazing pieces, but yeah, yeah, we're, it becomes like a full-on chase movie at this point. Like, there's not a whole lot of exposition that needs to happen here, except for Cohagen uh, towards the end. Um, but yeah, uh, they escape um, and they meet up with the the Martian leader Kuato, um, who is is one of the more gruesome uh, makeup effects in the film. Um, the like person carrying Kuato is played by Marshall Bell, who plays a Weasley character exceedingly well. <laughs> like he just has that goofy fucking hair all the time. Like I think that's just his natural hair, but. Um, he plays a, a like a, a scaredy cat general in Starship Troopers, but uh, Kuwato is referenced earlier in the film as being the leader of the like Martian revolt. And uh, as it so happens, Kuwato is a mutant uh, who takes the form of like it looks like a child coming out of a man's torso, <laughs> um, as imagined by Rob Bottin, again the man who gave us John Carpenter's thing. So it looks fucking disgusting, <laughs> and. Uh, Paul Verhoeven being as kind and strange a man as he is uh, decides to put his camera right up in its fucking face. It's mucus covered face. Um, but the whole situation here is that uh, we escaped um, we escaped capture but um, the Martians are now under threat of Cohagen shutting off their air. Um, so we're in a, we have a quandary here in the form of hmm, Cohagen wants Quaid but Kuato believes Quaid has some information in his head, which is mutually beneficial to everyone on Mars. So they do not give him up, even though, you know, it's cost the lives of many Martians and now they're being asphyxiated. <laughs> so one thing uh, we, we did mention, I believe, but it's worth re revisiting briefly here is um, that all these folks are humans that have been damaged by the protectors from the sun wasn't it it's and that's dome. what's caused the mutations yeah the dome that where for whatever reason they were mutated not because they're aliens but actually because of the atmosphere or whatever they're in radiation yeah and thus um kind of going back to what i was talking about that dystopic setting where it's there's a reason why uh, the secret layer to the resistance is through a strip club slash whorehouses these are like the only viable jobs for some of these people. Um, it's even kind of shown that like, even though they have psychic abilities, like many of them are just kind of forced to relegate to being like essentially street performers. Like that's the little girl when she you know, reads off and says, Oh, your birthday is this month or whatever. That's it's, they clearly are considered second class citizens. So then you realize that air is being controlled by a corporation and they can just decide to shut it off at a moment's notice. And it's actually a very ter terrifying concept. Like not only have these people been mutated by probably being the first wave of people to go to, you know, this planet and they hadn't set up proper shielding from the sun and radiation. Um, but now they've just been kind of relegated to being, you know, working in the 
whatever means they can to get by. And even though they have these great abilities, they're being ignored completely. Oh yeah. And they can't, they don't even have air. <laughs> like That's so scary. Yeah. They, they not, they don't just pay taxes. They have to pay a bill for their air. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, it makes me think of a, a show that my girlfriend, um, consumed um such that i was only able to see a couple episodes of it um the expanse um where a huge part of the narrative concerns people that are living off of earth um like on neighboring asteroids and planets and stuff and uh living without gravity and an atmosphere has caused them to be like brittle boned um physically disadvantaged in such a way that like if they wanted to go home they probably wouldn't be able to survive the trip honestly um yeah but yeah, it's it's all stuff that it's there. Um, but because Arnold's so goddamn like, like he's just a charisma magnet. Like he he just exudes so much like charisma. You you really can push it to the side and think nothing nothing of it. But if you stop for a second and you do, you can tell that like from top to bottom, this was a well considered production. It's like it's not a message movie by any means. But you know the the ins and outs of how this this world works. Somebody maybe somebody probably the director knew like they they had a little notebook that they were keeping well i was gonna say like i know that originally when it was being developed the the phrase they kept using to describe it was they wanted to make raiders of lost ark on mars yeah like that was the goal and it makes more sense like somebody like a william hurt who was considered for the role of quaid to be cast if maybe it really is more focused on this resistance element of these poor people who are being forced to pay for their air and who have been mutated by radiation of Mars, as opposed to just Arnold going about his day, just shooting up anything he wants and, you know, being this <laughs> massive action f- entity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, in, in some ways they kind of did end up making that movie because I think the second unit, the stunt coordinator guy, I want to say was the same guy. And uh, same attention to detail was paid at least to the construction of the action scenes. Uh, can't speak to the narrative, but um, but yeah, uh, Kuato uh, has his open your mind moment with uh, Quaid uh, where we get some really neat visual effects uh, taking a tour through uh, the Martian reactor, uh, which is apparently a, a deep dark secret on Mars that uh, Kohagen has been keeping under his hat. Um, because it's this reactor that he swears is going to blow up the planet um, because mm-hmm. uh, he he's often says that it's going to destroy the planet, but the, the other detail that he doesn't put as much emphasis on is that the reactor is fueled by the mineral that they're using for the war effort. So um, everything that's being mined on Mars will evaporate um, if the reactors activate, which if you're taxing people for their air, probably want to keep that stockpiled. Um, but it's through this vision that uh, Kuato unlocks that part of Quaid's memory. And uh, just in time, too, because uh, the mole shows up. Um, Ar- Arnold was so fixated on the mole, um, the big digger machine that's in the movie. It's it's just sprinkled throughout the, like, the third act of the movie. But every time it popped up on screen on the commentary track, Arnold was like, oh, it's the mole. <laughs> Apparently he liked it or something. But yeah, the, uh, the, the G-men show up. Uh, all the stormtroopers knock down the walls of the Martian resistance. And uh, 
uh, we discover that, oh my God, they used Quaid to find the resistance because it was underground and no one actually knew what Quato looked like. And sure enough, Benny, Benny is good old trustworthy Benny. He was a double agent. Um, and a really slick one too, because he has a Martian mutation. Um, so he blended in perfectly. And I, uh, He's outed when he mentions that he has four kids to feed. And Arnold points out, like, what happened to number five? <laughs> He's like, shit, you got me there. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kuato was killed and uh, our heroes are apprehended. And we get some more exposition from, uh, well, it's basically everything I just told you about the reactor. And uh, basically, this is where we finally get a face-to-face between Ronnie Cox's Kuhagen and uh, our heroes. And man, he... For a guy that wasn't really known for playing villains, uh, he's kind of like Leslie Nielsen, I guess, where he was known for one thing for most of his career, and then he tried a different thing. And it's like, wow, you you picked the wrong types of roles, man. You should have been the bad guy the whole time. Because like Leslie Nielsen, it's like, man, that guy's fucking funny. <laughs> it's like he wasn't always. And in Ronnie Cox's case, yeah, uh, Dick Jones and RoboCop, that's one of the best fucking villains ever. And Cohagen's a close second. He's pretty great. I like how uh, how loose he is. Like how how few fucks he has to give about anyone. <laughs> like there's that scene where he gets a phone call about the oxygen levels bottoming out in the Martian sector, and he's like, "Fuck them." <laughs> like, it's like, "Sir, but they're dying." He's like, "I don't care. Fuck them." <laughs> and then uh, Quaid and Molina both get strapped into some like recall machines because they're going to be reprogrammed. Uh, this is where we have a massive reveal where. Um, Cohagen reveals to Quaid that uh, his other personality, his his original personality, Hauser, uh, was his best buddy. Um, and he reveals this to him in the form of a, a video message recorded by Hauser, like with his arm slung over Cohagen. So it's like, <laughs> oh, apparently I was an asshole. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> it's like, apparently uh, Quaid is the real winner here. But um, the the scheme here is to like reprogram our heroes further so that like Molina will be subservient and Quaid will revert to Hauser, um, AKA Cohagen's friend, um, AKA the only reason why um, Michael Ironside has been not instructed to shoot to kill, even though he has really obviously been trying to kill him the whole time. Just <laughs> apparently he's a little bit inept, but um, I love that uh, his closing remarks before it leaves the room. Cohagen like says, "Like, oh, by the way, I'm gonna have a party tonight. Like, uh, it's like Doc, Doc, t- tell him when he wakes up. Like, show up at the party." Um, and uh, <laughs> Michael Ironside's Richter gets one last good shot in there where he's like, "Hey, Doc, is he gonna remember any of this? <laughs> he's like, what are you talking about?" <laughs> and uh, he he socks quaid in the face <laughs> and i like that he no sells the punch too <laughs> yeah no, of like course he, yeah he doesn't bleed he just like gives him a stern look after he gets socked in the face and it, michael ironside even like wags his hand like it hurt to hit him so it's like <laughs> damn it <laughs> like, this, like this guy really is john matrix or jack slater or whichever arnold superhuman you want to call him um but this sequence when they break out what like who tripped this up it's fucking amazing. <laughs> like, so like Arnold, again, as only Arnold can do and in only this kind of movie, the way he breaks out of the, the mind reprogramming machine is by just hulking out and breaking out. <laughs> like, there's no technique. There's no strategy. There's no like 
John McClane like wily tactics or anything. He just like muscles his way out of the machine. <laughs> <laughs> There's no plan. He just like gets angry and lifts his arm up. I feel like in the sequence too, this is when they start having to make some cuts for the violence because mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there's some janky editing during this escape sequence where there's a few, particularly rams a rod through a guy's head where it really cuts away very fast. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you just see the guy fall over. And then later he picks up a fire axe as they're running to an elevator and he hands it to Melina and she attacks a guy with it. And again, it just kind of abruptly cuts before, you actually see what occurred with said fire axe yeah uh, the director did say that that scene was cut quite a bit and you can tell um uh, that scene is just so hilarious though because he's just dismantling this room of doctors and there's a scene where they they like the camera focuses on these people like we devote entire shots to these doctors in lab coats going for weapons <laughs> like, like arnold's like throwing people across the room and putting holes in necks and uh breaking machinery with his bare hands and for some reason these guys in their orange lab coats uh are grabbing fire axes and pipes to to beat on him with it's like just fucking run like why why would you do that and uh yeah i love that I love that he sticks that rod through that man's face. And uh, we, we only get a few frames of it, of just him falling down. We don't actually get to see the insertion, but it's just like, oh my God, <laughs> like that just happened. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, that, that's the thing when it comes to violence on film is, especially in action movies, if you can make something unique, that's what makes it memorable. Is I can think of no other film where a rod was put through him. It's almost like through his nostril and out the top of his head. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, and that's that's kind of this tail end. That's that's all it is. Is just sequence of these hyper violence that it, it gets ingrained in your head. I mean, Quato getting shot point blank in the face is pretty grisly, especially when it resembles a mutated baby crawling out of a man's chest, like. And they, it's like they sacrificed this man getting the pipe pushed through his face, like a few seconds of that, so they could make sure you see all of Quato. Yeah, apparently it was important we saw Quato's head explode. (laughs) (laughs) It was important we saw that. We didn't, we couldn't figure it out just based on, you know, somebody pointing a gun at him and pulling the trigger and maybe a sound effect or something. Um, But yeah, uh, the whole finale here is just like a highlight real of awesome action beats just like really well choreographed really well thought out action scenes where we get to see uh, arnold's final trick in his book um but not before offing benny uh, we get the final instance of the mole where this is where the uh, the the dream theory really has a strong case is where benny inexplicably shows up driving a martian digging machine mm-hmm why would he you've be seen multiple times though kind of like they well, did foreshadow it yeah uh they really did foreshadow it um they they did show the mole digger machine uh very early when he arrived on mars and the again it's on the commentary track the reason why they show it when they do is to plant the seed that it's acceptable for it to play a part in the proceedings later and that's brilliant from a structural standpoint What's not brilliant is having Benny drive it because he has no reason to drive it. <laughs> like, like Benny would be at home, you know, with some like with some hookers or something, like counting his money. He's his so over the top too when he's driving at this point. <laughs> Where the real- fuck are you? 
it's just him scream, like talking, screaming gibberish the whole time while Quaid pull, picks up a power drill and manages to drill through the thing and delivers another great one-liner right before he kills him. What is it? Uh, hey, Benny, screw <laughs> you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, one thing I'll say about the actor who played Benny is that it, his line delivery is so distinct and memorable hey quaid <laughs> i'm gonna smash you <laughs> and yeah uh benny's death was also cut for gore uh, apparently mm-hmm. they had uh, some sort of like gut effect for him that uh he dies a mostly bloodless death the only blood it comes in the form of him pulling the the drill bit out of him yeah um, but uh the final trick in arnold's uh bag of tricks is uh the hologram which was demonstrated when he first got that suitcase of goodies from the mulleted man. Um, But basically this is a wristband that creates a holographic projection of him like 10 feet away from him. And uh, we get this wonderful shooting gallery sequence where he walks into this room full of armed guards who are all hidden and uh, tricks them into, he baits them into opening fire and like stepping out of cover to eliminate him. And it turns out, Oh no, it's, <laughs> you think this is the real Quaid? It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, it's so tongue in cheek and it cracks me up. Cause it's like, mind you, like we literally have the backdrop of a whole, all of this Mars colony is, is dying from lack of oxygen and he's screwing around laughing and like killing all these guys in the most casual way. But again, it, it's, he's a secret agent and you know, he has his little gadget and he's using that. So. Yeah. Uh, it, it's funny too, because the movie actually takes special care to repeatedly cut back to the people dying. <laughs> and then the music like shifts into high gear every time we cut back to Arnold shooting people. So the tone is kind of like all over the place at this point. Um, but like from a structural standpoint, it's neat how it the momentum is what's important. It's that the stakes are established. We know why we're in a hurry, and uh, why thing why everything is happening at such a fast clip at this point. But yeah, all these guards get offed in the most spectacular of ways. These squibs are enormous, and uh, <laughs> Melina even gets in on the action at one point. She causes two guys to shoot each other, um, and then we get the final showdown with Richter on an elevator, which. God damn, if you're going to make an action movie, you got to have a fist fight on an elevator. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I just did a review with Brad on the Cinema Speak podcast about Bloodshot, which has a awful fist fight on an elevator, um, which is truly disappointing being, as like I said, that, that's what we're all here to see is people punch each other on elevators. <laughs> it's like, that's, that is, that's filmmaking, God damn it. Um, and yeah, this one's short, but sweet. Where uh, you know both guys get their shots in. Uh, Michael Ironside, I will say this much, has a weird scream. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's not a pretty scream, um, but he gets a wonderful death. Wherein uh, Arnold throws him over the edge of the elevator, and uh, hmm, we're ripping his the, arms off. Yeah, we're getting the to the end of the road, and uh, yeah, his arms are still hanging over the edge of the platform, which causes his uh, arms to get squished off, and. Uh, we went the extra mile. We showed that stunt man with his arms taped to his torso falling down, <laughs> falling down the elevator shaft. And then Arnold has to throw his severed arms after him and tell him, see you at the party, Richter. <laughs> it's like, 
God damn. I love it. Like they don't even have dialogue for him during this whole sequence of things. It's like after the whole portion where you're seeing the recording of him hanging out with Koeng, it's just Arnold delivering one-liner after one-liner amidst all this brutality. It's amazing. Well, I mean, if you subscribe to the dream theory, this this is like the end, like spoiler alert uh, for Brazil, uh, Terry Gilliam's uh, Brazil. So three, two, one. Um, uh, it's like the walls of reality crashing down portion of the finale of that film where it's like this, this is a fractured mind just kind of like trying to get to the end without breaking. Um, so this is the best he's got. <laughs> it's like every move I make, results in good things happening for me i should just run to the end (laughs) so this is just a sprint to the finish line at this point Uh, so the final showdown of the film happens uh at the uh, control center for the reactor which is represented by it's like a handprint in the center of like a metal an alien yeah handprint yeah and uh cohagen just happens to be there again supports the the dream theory because why would why would the CEO of a corporation be here at a at at a, uh, a Martian ruin with no armed guards to back him up? Why would he even be there? Like he yeah, wouldn't. Exactly. He'd be at he'd be at the party is where he'd be. But it's a movie, goddamn it. So he's there, and uh, much like Dick Jones, he gets shot. <laughs> like poor Ronnie Cox can't be in a Paul Verhoeven movie without getting shot. <laughs> um, Molina shoots him after he has a wonderful bad guy line i don't know who wrote this but uh something about i'll blow this place to kingdom come and be back in home back in time and like back home in time for (laughs) cornflakes it's so it's so silly but perfect and he's so slimy and good at the delivery of it uh, which i just botched but um yeah uh long story short the reactor is activated by arnie uh but not before a epic struggle between a very old frail man who with two bullets in his shoulder (laughs) and arnold (laughs) um and uh yeah we get a reprise of rob botin's wonderful um inflating people effects um in the form of uh, ronnie cox being sucked out into the martian atmosphere because this reactor doesn't start up in an instant it takes some time to get rolling and uh we keep cutting back like it can, it it's disarming because you're like you're like watching Arnold struggle and you're watching Melina and like the two of them like, like trying not to get sucked out and then we cut back to Ronnie Cox exploding and then we cut back to Arnold and then we cut back to more exploding and it takes its sweet fucking time for him to die like we cut back to him like four fucking times and it keeps getting worse <laughs> until his eyes pop out of their sockets and you can tell Rob Bottin and his boys were just like this is fucking sweet (laughs) 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 Um, but yeah uh, he dies the reactor goes off Uh, Arnold and Molina both get spit out onto the Martian Martian surface Um, and they both start to die (laughs) but they only get halfway there because they came out later than Ronnie Cox um, and we get like a protracted, like several minute long special effects sequence of no dialogue, just uh, the Martian atmosphere forming um, as this reactor puts its like control rods into a glacier underneath it and big white vapor clouds blow up into the atmosphere and we get to see all the Martian people um, watching the chaos unfold and all the windows get blown open. And uh, by the end of it all, uh, our heroes are still alive and... Uh, there's air on mars and yeah again going back to 
that whole concept of like the big evil corporate overlord where it's basically suggested that this whole time he's had the ability to make this a livable atmosphere and chose instead to profit from it. Um, I think too, in the end, like now, you know, we've covered every inch of this movie, but the concept of Mars, I think too, jumps out to me, like, especially because Mars, Mars gets mentioned all the time now in, in our era, 2020, where it's, it's kind of this mythical place that we always hear all these billionaire guys who are in this race to go over there. And, and in reality, they're probably just going to turn it into a paradise and leave us all (laughs) on earth to rot. But um, it's interesting to think of like in the book, from my understanding is that like Mars is kind of like a mythical place and so to to put that onto this movie, it's like imagining everything that Quaid went through and he's constantly told like Mars is a shithole. Mars is like, I think that really, really plays the whole concept that it was all a dream because it's basically saying it's this thing that can be anything you want it to be, but it doesn't really exist, you know? Yeah, actually you have a pretty strong point there where it's a, it is emphasized earlier in the film, especially that it, why would you want to go there? And it's also mentioned that he's never been there. He just has a fixation on it. Uh, so it is just like a big old playground for him. And, you know, there's a strong case for the exotic other always being the the thing that we fixate on, that part of why it's so precious and entrancing is that it's not actually known to us. So it can be whatever we want it to be. Well, and I think, too, because I, from my, my understanding, again, I didn't read the book, but I know that it ends with the main character having been a teenager and having somehow brokered peace with an alien race. And I think that the point of that was all like the imagination component and also kind of like almost this like God concept for the protagonist, you know, because he's so stuck in his own head of trying to escape the drudgery of his day-to-day life. And so again, it's in this thing that Quaid has to go to Mars to find a set of people to save the world for because earth is doomed basically. And I think that that's supposed to be the whole point is or, like, or because he knows who he is on earth. So yeah. the, only, the only way to become someone else is to just go to a completely different place. Mm-hmm. But right. yeah, it, it's, it's so funny to me that like you can actually take a moment to consider all these things when we literally just described a 20 minute sequence of Arnold just delivering one liner after one liner before brutally murdering somebody. Yeah. But it's also gleeful and enjoyable. (laughs) Like it, it really is an enjoyable movie. Like you can choose not to read into it at all. You can choose to just take it as just lights with sound and you'll have a good time with it, which I think is the secret genius of it. And a lot of Paul Verhoeven's filmography, but um, I like that the the closing lines of the film. Um, basically, it's Molina and him like looking up into the sky, the newly formed atmosphere that he created with his bare fucking hands, literally. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's like, oh, it's almost too good. It's like, I hope this. Is, he's like, I hope this isn't a dream. She's like, well, then shut up and kiss me. And then they kiss, and then we have that fade to white that I've mentioned several times. And I like that they. You know, for for the casual viewer who really isn't paying attention to, you know, any of the meta textual elements of the storytelling, like it, it is like a little bit of a reminder that it's like, mm-hmm. this might all be a fabrication if you really think about it. But if you don't, well, you know, you just watched a fun movie and the hero smooched the 
the heroine at the end. <laughs> um, yeah. And I do, I do like that we have a fade to white and then a snap to black. So we, we get it both ways. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you just summed up the brilliance of Total Recall. And uh, I'm glad we can get together and cover, <laughs> talk about longer than the actual runtime of the film. Yeah, that wasn't, that was not anticipated. Like, uh, it's been a long time since I've run through a movie front to back like that. But, you know, it didn't, wasn't a bad thing because obviously this is a movie we had a lot to say about. So I'm, I'm glad we finally got to it because you've, you've mentioned it to me uh, on the side like, a few times. So it's, it's been, it's been something that had to happen for a long time. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks so much for suggesting it and uh, standing in for my regular co-host, Kyle. Um, maybe we'll have you back on the show like sooner rather than later. Maybe even next week. We'll see. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but um, in the meantime, folks at home, uh, if you want to catch up on some of our other catching up on cinema content, that would be our other 100 plus episodes of podcasts and whatnot. Uh, you can find all of those collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com as well as hosted on uh, basically any podcast platform you can imagine, um, wherever better podcasts are sold. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you want to reach out to us on the social medias, we do have a couple of accounts. Uh, we have an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as a Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those if you are so inclined. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.